and welcome to the Wing Women podcast, hosted by journalists and best mates, Frankie Graddon, that's me, and Charlie Gowans Eglinton, that's her. Hey, Chazzy, woohoo! How are you? All right, Franks. <laughs> How are you? You seem great. <laughs> I am tip top. Thank you very, Just very much. Just high on life over there. Just loving it. Sun's out. I've got a duskin apple juice for my tipple this evening. So this is from the local village. However, I've also found it in my local corner shop in Stoke Newington. Right. And they do lots of different apples that they juice. So tonight, Matthew, I'm drinking Cox. But my favourite is Gala. I wonder if we'll ever be able to say cocks without going, ooey. <laughs> I like, doubt do, it. Do you reach an age? No. I hope I not. I doubt it. I think an, an innuendo is universally appealing no matter your age. I love an innuendo. How are you anyway? What are you up to? Well, Franks, I'm having a cheeky little Negroni. Oh, um, nice. I love a Negroni, as you well know. It's just... Gin, Campari and vermouth, equal parts. And a little twist of orange, if you're feeling fancy. But my update to my Negroni is that Stanley Tucci made one on Instagram. Obviously, the first time I watched that video, it was difficult for me to concentrate on what Tucci was saying. I was too immersed in the experience of it. But when I listened to it, when I watched it maybe the 12th or 13th time, Stanley impressed upon the world how important it is to get good vermouth. Right. Did I have good vermouth? No. I've just been buying the cheap oh. stuff. Oh, babe. Absolutely mortified. What would Stanley have said if he ever came round to my house? So, I now have an Antica Formula Capano Vermouth, which I got from a website called masterofmalt.com. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know if Stanley would say it's good or not, but it's got a wax seal. So I think that means it's good. I love a wax seal. Right? So dignified. Yeah. So, yeah, delicious. Bottoms up. Charles, I have been really indulging myself this week. Have you? Yeah. I'm delighted to hear it. How so? I mean, reading-wise. So, I'm down in Debs, still, a million years later, and I've read the books that I brought with me, because I didn't think I was coming for that long, but hey-ho. So now I'm raiding mum's bookshelf. Mum does have really good taste in books. However, she also indulges in a little bit of buy two for five pounds from the garden centre. I didn't know garden centres did books, you know. Yeah, yeah. Otter nurseries down in Devon. So I've decided to read a couple and they are so shit, but (laughs) so good. You know, because the thing is is normally every summer I let myself read some absolute trash when I go on holiday by the side of a pool kind of books, you know? Yeah. And, well, we haven't had that this summer. No, that's so true. You normally pick up at WH Smith at the airport something with maybe like a martini glass on the front of it or a sunset. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So, I mean, I'm sad to say 
she hasn't got any Jackie Collins in the bookshelf, so I haven't been able to read that. Haven't been able to read any Penny Vincenzi. Devastated. But I've read a couple of books. I'm not going to name and shame because one woman's trash is another woman's treasure and I don't like being snobby about books. But let's just say they're not insightful. They're not thought-provoking. You don't take (laughs) anything away from them. They are just stories that have highly improbable plot twists. The first one I read had a glamorous model who lived in a muse house in London. And then there was a mysterious family secret. And the model ran a vintage clothing boutique. There was an antiques dealer involved. Fantastic. When you said Otto Nurseries, I slightly misunderstood and I thought they were going to be in the vein of you know when it was like the pony in the parking lot and the um <laughs> the cat in the corridor yes. I'm sure these weren't the exact ones what series <laughs> was that I feel like it was ponies in the pantry or something like that or puppies yeah, in the pantry that's a bit less than a parking lot I've, I've made it a bit too urban <laughs> what were they I never read those but my friends at school adored them I feel like you could get them at the supermarket oh Okay, so they're written by Ben M. Baglio under the pseudonym Lucy Daniels from 1994. It's called Animal Ark. Animal Ark, yes. Kittens in the Kitchen, Pony on the Porch, Puppies in the Pantry, (laughs) Hedgehogs in the Hall, Badger in the Basement, Cover the Cupboard, Beagle in a Backpack. (laughs) Niche. I would read that. Some of them are a bit lazy. Labrador on the lawn. It's not very much intrigue there, is there? That's exactly where a Labrador (laughs) should be. Anyway, I'm delighted you found some reading material. I've thoroughly enjoyed myself. I will go back to reading books of substance in a minute, but I might just read one more crappy one. (laughs) What have you been up to? Well, I've had a haircut. So I see. Don't I look fantastic if I do say so myself I love a blunt end so blunt she's taken a good few inches off I'm not sure how many but I hadn't had a haircut since September and it was it was severe I went to a hairdresser called Natalia Alves who is based in Stoke Newington who was recommended to me by my friend because it's just her in her salon and she wore a mask over her mouth and nose underneath a visor Double and layered. I wore a mask, so I felt very safe. And the hair washing chair was really comfortable. And having someone wash my hair, mm. that was fucking great. Yeah, so I'm just severely feeling myself. I've taken quite a lot of selfies that will never see the light of day. <laughs> and um, just feel quite slick, even when picking up dog poo at seven o'clock in the morning, which is my new thing. Poo does belong to a dog that I am dog-sitting, You're not just doing some sort of community clearing operation? No. I'm dog-sitting for a month. It's been a week. Her name is Ellie. She's a sprocker, which is a springer and a cocker spaniel. Ah, I've never heard of a sprocker. So they're like... So they're gun dogs, basically. They're used to hunting and shooting. I mean, they don't shoot the guns themselves, I don't think, unless they're, like, incredibly (laughs) well-trained. But they have a lot of energy. So I'm not sure that that is a, a natural city dog. No. And the reason I'm dog sitting is because I've always wanted a dog. So when a friend of a friend needed someone to watch their dog for August, my friend recommended me. Lord, it is a lot of responsibility. <laughs> and such a big commitment. And I 
I mean, I can't take her into a food shop. So what am I supposed to do with her as a single person? How am I supposed to do my food shopping? Or anything, really? I know that sounds really stupid, but how am I supposed to get a full day's work done? Tricky. This is the, the reality. And it's... I grew up with dogs, Labradors, who are slightly lazier, I'd say, than a sprocker sounds. But they do need constant attention. But I think this is very important to discuss because, and I don't know the stats, but during lockdown, lots of people have gone and bought pets, a popular one being dogs. Fine when everyone's at home working from home, but if and when we do go back into office life, that's going to be an interesting thing to navigate. What it's made me think about is my own rigidity and my own selfishness as someone who lives alone but actually I wonder if I wonder if lockdown and if shrinking our lives in this way has made us all more rigid because actually we're now less used to having to deal with anything unexpected in our day-to-day and obviously we have this huge stress of a pandemic but I don't have the regular setbacks of getting to the train station and the tube's overcrowded so they've closed the platform and I have to find a different way to work or having a meeting cancelled or a dinner cancelled or those tiny little things that change every day Mm. that are unpredictable. I have very little of that now because I spend so much time at home and I have so much more control over everything that happens at home. So I do everything exactly as I plan it And I think I've become a lot more rigid and a lot less able to deal with change. And I wonder if... If it's a side effect of pandemic living. Yeah, and I think socialising is such a wonderful thing and obviously I miss it so much and I miss people so much. But there was also a lot of obligation stuff that Mm. we did before that now you just don't have to do. For me, at least... Lockdown has allowed me to become incredibly rigid. And I don't mean that in a good way. Although I do think it can be good to be selfish when you're talking about your mental health and and your happiness. And especially if it's not negatively impacting anyone else, which it doesn't. I live alone. It doesn't bother anyone else if I'm rigid and selfish and want to do things my way. I do think it's going to be a real adjustment. I completely agree with you because we haven't had... We haven't been in contact with other people so we haven't had to take other people's needs and timelines and ways of doing things into consideration we've just been able to run on on our timeline and how we like to do things there's no compromising no and part of that is just so lovely and it's i found it very easy to slip into that i've enjoyed not having to think, oh, is so-and-so going to let me down for that? Are they going to be late for that? Is someone going to cancel that? So, Frenu, what else have you been thinking about this week? So I read a great piece by Daisy Buchanan for Grazia, and it's called We Need Empathy, Compassion and a Focus on Mental Health, Not Calorie Counts on Menus. So this was her piece in response to Boris's Better Health campaign, which is essentially proposing to tackle the nation's obesity by putting calories on menus, 
banning junk food adverts pre the 9pm watershed and encouraging the nation to get cycling. This was announced this week. I love Daisy's writing. She's always very honest. She's very funny, especially when she talks about weight. It has been a prominent issue in her life. She writes about having been both underweight and overweight and having dealt with a difficult relationship with food for many years. The Better Health campaign, personally, I feel like there's so many issues with this plan. Why ban junk food ads before nine o'clock when it's so that kids don't see it? And in my experience of families, kids don't do the food shopping, adults do. So I don't fully understand that. Many areas of the UK are not safe to ride a bike in. London, absolutely terrifying if you are not a seasoned cyclist. And even then, it's scary. And obesity is basically measured on your BMI measurement, which takes weight divided by your height. And if you're over a certain number, I think it's if you're over 30, you're obese. But this doesn't take into account different body shapes. For example, if you've got ginormous boobs and it doesn't take into account that muscle weighs more than fat so apparently a lot of personal trainers are technically obese which is obviously mad however the point of daisy's piece is that weight and how much food we eat and what food we eat is very often based on how we feel and our emotional state And by simply putting calories on a menu, this plan is not acknowledging and addressing that at all. She mentions in the piece she was familiar with the calorie content of most food before she knew the 12 times table. And I imagine many people listening to this are in a similar boat. We know that a cheeseburger has more calories than a salad, We know that, but it doesn't stop us eating a cheeseburger. And why is that? It's because of all the emotional complexities that lead us to wanting the cheeseburger. So for me, that can be stress. It can be sadness. It's a comfort eating thing. It might be a self-loathing thing that I'm self-sabotaging. It might be defiant. Why shouldn't I eat this? It's so emotionally fraught, those decisions. And Daisy says in her piece, of course, being overweight doesn't mean you're unhappy. But I'm certain that being unhappy puts a great strain on our relationship with food. And the two things needed to tackle the nation's eating habits are empathy and compassion. And I think especially now with this year, particularly with the pandemic and with lockdown, so many of us are dealing with the emotional fallout of that and will be continuing to deal with that. Feelings of isolation, of feeling out of control, fear for your health, fear for your job. There's so much And I think that that will play hugely into our eating habits, what we eat, how we eat. And I think by not talking about it, by not acknowledging it, by simply saying, well, when you go into a restaurant and try and order a meal, we're going to tell you how many calories are in your menu decisions, which just sounds awful, actually. 
and for me would completely take the joy out of going to a restaurant. I think this misses the point. Well, it just makes what should be a special occasion thing joyless. And it also assumes that people ordering in restaurants have no idea, have no concept of what's a healthy food and what's a less healthy food, which I think is really patronising. But also, I don't think we should be putting foods into categories of naughty and good, because that just perpetuates this this dangerous cycle and you learn these patterns of, of disordered eating at a really young age. I think the conversations that we need to be having are much more complex and we should be talking about people's relationships with food and how to tackle that in children and teenagers because that's when you're feeling most vulnerable and your body is changing and that's when you learn a lot of this behaviour, I think, Mm. that you carry over and then spend your adult life trying to remedy. I I 100% agree. I think there should be education there and conversation there and coming back to Daisy's compassion and empathy there. And I think this speaks to society's view of bodies. And I don't want to stereotype in terms of men's and, and women's bodies. We're both cisgender women, so that's our experience. We've only had that experience, but I do tend to think that society is harder on women's bodies. We spoke last week about the circle of shame culture that used to be in tabloid magazines. And all right, we don't have that anymore, but we have other things that are directed at women to make them think that one body shape or a very narrow collection of body shapes are the ideal. So when you don't look like that, that is when food becomes potentially a way to control and change how you look, but also how you feel. Because if you don't adhere to what is considered acceptable, beautiful, desirable, attractive, that makes you feel like shit. So then for so many of us, we then take that out on food, whether that is overeating, whether that is undereating, whether that's embarking on fad diets. I mean, we grew up in the 90s, which I just feel was a peak for fad dieting. I have drunk slim fast shakes. I have just eaten eggs and steak on Atkins. I remember, and thank God we don't do this anymore, but women's magazines would have fad diets. I remember reading about Michelle Heaton from Liberty Air, and I remember reading a interview with her in I can't remember what teeny magazine it was but she said that she only ate half the food on her plate so then I only ate half the food on my plate for ages exactly you hear some little throwaway comment from someone that you look up to who's in a magazine Mm. and you're like oh that's that's what I have to do to be acceptable exactly of course yes we do need to talk about education in terms of what is in our food, where our food comes from. And people like Jamie Oliver have done a ton of stuff, especially in schools, to speak to kids at a very young age so that we can make the right decisions. And obviously there's things about making food, healthy food, more accessible, more convenient, more affordable. That is an an issue. And I do think that maybe banning buy two, get the third free on 
junk food okay yes that might help that but then you also then need to make healthy choices affordable because it it is more expensive to eat fresh fruit fresh vegetables good quality meat good quality fish it's expensive to do it and i'm saying that as someone who has a disposable income and is in a privileged position to buy those things. I was reading a Twitter thread this morning actually about this and and some people were saying on Twitter that all of those shows where they talk about, you know, how to save money and how to get the best deals, they always are going into a huge supermarket. They're always going to the markdown section and going, oh, look, see, there's loads of bargains here. A, that's suggesting that you go to a supermarket every day, every other day to get the bargains that you're able to go to a big supermarket. A lot of people who are on really tight budgets don't have cars. Transport costs a lot of money. A lot of the time you are reliant on your local shop and those are often more expensive. Unless you happen to live near a giant, more affordable supermarket, you can't pop in. And also, again, people who are on tighter budgets are often working incredibly long hours on really low wages so they can't be popping in to a supermarket all the time to pick up different ingredients or go to three different supermarkets to get the best deals also people who do have more wealth are always happy to say oh you shouldn't feed your families with junk food and actually you can buy a bag of potatoes for less than you can buy a bag of frozen chips but a, they're assuming that you have the time to actually prepare all your meals from scratch. And also, B, when TV chefs talk about throwing together a meal for a couple of quid and batch cooking, they never take into account the store cupboard ingredients. And they say, oh, you add a bit of salt and you add a bit of pepper and you add a bit of chilli powder and, oh, you can get great flavourings from this and that. But stocking a store cupboard, stocking a spice rack is expensive. And it just highlights how big that gap is. That is definitely something that needs to be addressed. And I really hope that... This plan that Boris's plan does genuinely tackle that. I also think it's great that there's a £50 bike repair voucher to make exercise more accessible. Although if there is a bike on sale left in London, I would be astounded <laughs> because my local bike shops have been the hotspot of lockdown and shitty old bikes are selling for a fortune. But I think I understand that there is a issue to be remedied. I think the danger is with plans like this is that it doesn't go any deeper and it's just a quick fix. And if this issue was able to be fixed quickly, everyone would have a really healthy attitude with food everyone would have a really healthy diet we would all be in the parameters of the weight that we are medically supposed to be I think this is a bigger issue and I just thought Daisy spoke about it so beautifully she a, a quote from her piece she says my troubled relationship with food is a result of growing up in a world which has told me that my body is a problem to be solved, which is what the government is telling us right now. And I just thought that summed it up so movingly. In your column this week, you wrote about how your relationship with your body, how your body image is changing, actually being pregnant and how that's kind of bringing up for you the disordered eating of your teens and, and early 20s. Yeah, so... 
And perhaps this is why my mind is more on this subject, but I struggled with disordered eating very much so in my late teens and early 20s. There's so many things that go into disordered eating, partially a control thing, partially a body image thing, partially a trying to deal with fear, trying to deal with growing up. All of these things packaged together meant I then took it out on food and took it out on my body and didn't think that I looked right and and hated looking in the mirror, hated what my body was doing. So then basically tried to make it as small as possible by not eating very much at all. And then inevitably when I did binge eat, because I'd been eating so little, then threw everything up. And it was a horrible, horrible, horrible cycle. And it's something I got a handle on later in my 20s. I was so exhausted with hating myself and with food becoming the most important issue of my life. It was. It was all I thought about. And it was utterly miserable. Food should be such a joy. And it is one of the great joys of life. But for so many and so often it can become this complete torturous prison that you find yourself in because you just cannot figure out how to live with it in a healthy way. I've sort of managed to get a handle on it. And as I wrote in my piece, I call the truce with my body. I didn't love it, but I stopped hating it quite so much. I actively made a decision to stop hating it quite so much. And I was able to think about other things. I was able to live with it, um, live with food and enjoy food to a certain extent. But being pregnant has, and I wasn't expecting this at all, actually, but it's completely changed how I feel about my body in the sense that it has made me think about what's going on inside rather than how it looks and how bodies function. And I'm not saying for a second that... I have discovered my body is amazing because it can produce a child. I do think it's amazing that bodies can produce children, but a body doesn't need to produce a child to be amazing. What I have been feeling and what I've discovered is that because I've been so aware of what's going on inside my body, but I've also seen a body grow and the intricacies of a body growing, all of the things it has to do to function all of the I mean it just blows you there are so many parts to a human body and how it all just it just grows and it's it is absolutely amazing and our bodies no matter how they work are working in some form or another without us even realizing so by focusing on that and what your body does and what my body does, it's made me stop thinking about it in an aesthetic form of what it looks like. And just that flipping of viewpoint and looking at a body in a different way, in the way that I think you probably should look at it, in a health way of thinking, right, my thigh muscles mean that I can walk up this hill rather than my big wibbly thighs don't look good in a string bikini. It just flipping that has just, it's been so liberating and it's taken me until I'm pregnant to realize it. 
because that's how I'm now thinking about bodies. Were you worried that pregnancy and the changes to your body that come with that would trigger something? Massively, massively, because if you're lucky, you get to a point where you are happy, maybe you are accepting of what your body looks like. And I think maybe it does happen a little bit later when you have grown up because your body has stopped morphing. I think our bodies change so much, not just throughout teenagehood, but I think also, I mean, my 20s, my body changed loads and my face changed. And I think perhaps when you get into your 30s, things level out, or that's certainly how I felt. So you sort of get a handle on what your body looks like. And then all of a sudden it completely changes. Your hormones are going everywhere as well, which plays into how you are feeling. So, yes, that was definitely a concern. And I hate the commentary on pregnant bodies. I hate this. I mean, I get emails from the NCT because I've signed up constantly reminding me that I don't need to be eating for two just need to eat 200 more calories and I've eaten loads more than normal because I either feel sick or starving and my tastes have changed and I just want certain different things and I think to have to worry about all the things that you worry about when you're pregnant and also worry about your weight I just it seems unfair to have that added pressure because then another wave of pressure comes when you've given birth and all of a sudden you're meant to be back in your whatever size jeans. I can't remember which kid it was that Victoria Beckham was pregnant with, but I remember reading a headline to say she was back in her size zero jeans within six weeks. And I do think that that is still applauded which makes me feel very uncomfortable and I feel very nervous about that part of it but I felt actually surprisingly for me and unexpectedly for me quite at peace with my body during this process because I am just thinking about all of the functions it is doing and if that means that my ass is a bit bigger than normal I'm actually okay with that for now. Well, because you've got more important things to worry about. And that's part of what irks me about this Boris thing, because obviously health is so important. And I understand that it puts extra strain on an already very overstretched NHS. But are we not under enough stress? It's not like the pandemic's over. All the headlines today are are that the second wave is coming and that we're weeks behind Spain and we're heading for a second lockdown. And I just think it's nonsense that suddenly it's time to get in shape when actually people are still terrified and we still don't really know what's going on with the world. And I think maybe it would be nice to see a campaign that is addressing mental health and how we are all feeling right now and how we are all going to be feeling and how we are all going to deal with the new normal. And I think perhaps that could be a more successful way of addressing everything that we've just discussed and ultimately you know health isn't just how your body looks health is your entire being and everything is linked so if we do 
have something that is put in place to support us all, to support people, then perhaps we'll see a much healthier nation. Surprising, really, isn't it? Because normally we feel, you and I, that Boris just really gets us. So (laughs) it's weird for there to be this disconnect because normally I'm just like, yes, Boris, exactly what I was thinking, pal. Thank you for considering me and my needs. So, Charlie, what are your recommendations for this week? I watched a film, How to Build a Girl. It's directed by Koki Giedrock, who is a female director and also the sister, because I googled this, of Mel Giedrock of Mel and Sue fame. Love Mel and Sue. So it's based on Catelyn Moran's 2014 novel, How to Build a Girl, which is fictional, but it is also semi-autobiographical. It's a coming-of-age story about the protagonist, Johanna, growing up on a council estate in Wolverhampton and her first steps into journalism. So Beanie Feldstein has been cast in the leading role. She is brilliant. It took me about 10 minutes to get my head around her Wolverhampton accent. Not that I am a Wolverhampton native, but it starts with a voiceover from her. And it took me a minute. Apparently she moved to Wolverhampton for two weeks to learn the accent because she is American, Beanie Feldstein. And did you know this? She is actually the sister of Jonah Hill. No. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why they've got different surnames. Anyway, she's really, really brilliant in it. She's a brilliant actress. And actually, I loved her in Booksmart. And she's also in Ladybird. And it's a brilliant film. It's so beautifully written and there's so much that you can relate to you could have grown up somewhere completely different with a completely different set of circumstances and you will still relate to so much of this it's funny and it's brilliant and I'm very sad that Emma Thompson only had a cameo really at the end but I'm hoping that the sequel might bring us some more Emma Thompson I'm optimistic anyway it's utterly brilliant and it's on Amazon Prime My second recommendation, there have been a couple of articles around the release of a book called Big Friendship, How We Keep Each Other Close. And I have not yet read the book, which is just coming out. It's from two friends, Aminatu So and Anne Friedman. They are the hosts of the podcast Call Your Girlfriend. Such a good podcast. Aminatu is based in Brooklyn in New York and Anne is based in LA. And so it's their conversations from different coasts they've written this book which talks about the big friendships in your life they talk about how much work you need to put in to maintain friendships and that they're not just easy and natural always and actually i read an excerpt of the book on the cut it's called there's a divide in even the closest interracial friendships including ours and this excerpt tackles a particular moment a particular instance when aminatu walked into a party that Anne was throwing and she was the only black person there and how that made her feel and how they then tackled that in their friendship and how they deal with race within their friendship so the co-authors actually did a 30 minute chat on the cuts instagram i also read an interview with them on Glamour by Yvette Dion. One of the things I found interesting was that they talk about origin stories and how when you're a couple, so with Ben, people will ask you, how did you meet? Mm. I'm guessing, right? Yeah. And people rarely ask us how we met. What they talk about is how important it is to celebrate your origin stories of your friendships as well as your origin stories for your relationships. We've been together 
as a friendship duo <laughs> for 14 years. Do you remember what you first thought of me? Hair, fringe, good fringe. Were you wearing cowboy boots? Probably. Mm. You were definitely wearing a knitted sort of mini dress. Yeah. Knitted, I think it was green and I had cowboy boots on and you had just the glossiest, fullest fringe I've ever seen. I cut about 70% of my hair into a fringe and then (laughs) (laughs) it was only 30% in the back. It went deep. It started really at the back of my head. I loved it. And just wrapped around. The book is called Big Friendship, How We Keep Each Other Close and it is out now. Franks, what are your recommendations this week? So my first recommendation is a TV series and it is A Suitable Boy on BBC. So this is based on the 1993 Vikram Seth novel of the same name. It is a six-parter and it is a drama set in 1950s post-partition India. There are two sort of complicated love stories that form the main strands of the drama series. Um, A young Hindu woman falling in love with a young Muslim man and a son of a politician falling in love with a courtesan, both of which are deeply complicated and have that sort of Romeo-Juliet forbidden love vibe about it. So it deals with forbidden love, family pressure, class division, religious conflict. It's the first BBC period drama with an entirely non-white cast, which has been celebrated, but it's also been criticised because a white screenwriter has been chosen. And critics have said that it hasn't tackled the role that Britain played in India's partition. So the partition happened in 1947 when India became an independent and split into two countries, the Republic of India and Pakistan. It displaced about 50 million people. It was a massive period of unrest and a hell of a lot of people died. And Britain played a role in that and that has not been acknowledged in the series. Having said that, writer Armani Said for Refinery29 has written about it and has said, this was the first time I've ever witnessed an on-screen sexual encounter between two South Asians, with Bollywood broadly adhering to a no-kiss norm and previous representation favouring interracial couples, this is no small feat. To see a couple with bodies the same colour as mine experiencing the best and worst of relationship can only be good for the soul. It's gripping, it's beautifully shot, it looks amazing. The actors, the cast is just fabulous and I love it. I've watched two episodes and I can't wait to watch the other four. They're available on iPlayer, brilliant. I would thoroughly recommend it. It's just a shame that they've chosen a white screenwriter then. It's such a missed opportunity. And in Armani's piece, and I'm paraphrasing, but she says that there is no way that an Indian screenwriter would be allowed to tell the story of a white community. However, a white male has been allowed to tell the story of an Indian community, which doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. And and because of that, it has been filtered through a white British lens. Did you learn about the British Empire at school? Because I don't think I did. No. You know, I can whittle you a Tudor rose out of wax and whatever, and I can definitely whip up a pomander, but I didn't learn about the empire. And Britain does like to pretend that we've never done anything wrong, which is laughable. I mean, there's so many issues with the curriculum and what we get taught and what we do not get taught. My 
second recommendation is oh so modern love is i think everyone's favorite on the new york times everyone's favorite series and they have done a little spin-off and it is a little spin-off because it's called tiny love stories and oh i've read these they're so oh, lovely they're little love stories of no more than a hundred words and I'm always astounded that anyone can get anything into 100 words because I struggle to massively. But I'm just going to read a couple out because they are just absolutely charming. So a story that bloomed. My family's farm in the west of Ireland had a giant honeysuckle. When sent to the spring well, I would set down my bucket to smell the blossoms. When I was 10 and we left the farmhouse for the nearby village, the honeysuckle was the only thing I missed. Yesterday, in America, I noticed a honeysuckle outside my office window. When had Ken planted it? When had I told him? In a transatlantic marriage, there are so many departures and datelines, so many tales to tell. My story of the honeysuckle must have taken root in Ken's mind and bloomed. Oh, Ken. Oh, that's lovely. He planted her a honeysuckle. He planted her a honeysuckle. Oh, why is nobody planting me a honeysuckle? Actually, it's fine. I don't need them because I planted my own jasmine outside my own bedroom window. Well, there you go. And I'm just going to... I am Ken. You are Ken. (laughs) And I'm just going (laughs) to quickly read this one because it's sort of pandemic appropriate. This brave new world. Three weeks before the world shut down, a date on a Central Park bench lasted 16 hours. She, an Afro-Caribbean PhD candidate writing a dissertation on interracial love in colonial Africa. I, a white high school English teacher, writing a novel about interracial love in the American South. Suddenly people are dying and we are driving to Atlanta. Time spent with my family and in my hometown with its Confederate monument. Our love defies power and typical timelines. A return to Brooklyn's masked marches. Our wedding, May 2021. Our brave new world. We will raise children in it. And oh that, my god, that one's giving me tingles. I know, that's by Britt Buttrill. And the honeysuckle author was Annie Graney. Oh, lovely. Oh, they're just lovely. They're on the New York Times and there's a little collection. You can also submit one yourself. And I think especially the news is so grim this week and it just really chid me up. You've started putting ribbon around your head, so I think it's time to go. Yeah, well I need to <laughs> I need to make the most of this time when Ellie's out to pack for Dorset. Oh, yeah. Because she does quite like to get in things. And I'm not sure that packing will be possible. No. So that's exciting. Next week's podcast will be brought to you via Devon and Dorset. The double Ds. It's the name of our girl band. <laughs> oh. Well, thank you so much for listening. If you have enjoyed the episode, please rate, review and subscribe. And you can read us in written form, of course, by signing up to our weekly newsletter, which comes out every Sunday. You can sign up at thewingwoman.co.uk. It's free in your inbox. Great stuff. You can also find us on Instagram at Charlie Gowans, at Frankie Graddon, and collectively at thewingwoman underscore. All right. Bye. Bye.